Well, good morning. I think this is the stand I use every Sunday. I think it is. All right. Well, we're continuing our series through Luke, and uh, just back up just a little bit. I just like to look at that graphic. I just, I just love that graphic. And uh, so, continuing our series in Luke, before we uh, turn to our verse uh, from where our sermon is coming from this morning, I just wanted to say um, an additional note about baptism before we get into our sermon. And we had, you know, two groups. And so, I just wanted to communicate to us all that... Um, you know, God's covenant faithfulness extends to all those who put their trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when those who trust in Christ have families, God's covenant faithfulness also extends to their children. And that means when God sees a household, he doesn't just see individuals, he sees a family. And the Bible says that even if one parent believes the children are holy in the sight of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7 and 14, um, that means that your faith counts for your children in God's sight until they're able to express faith. God's promise to Abraham was that in Abraham, all of the families of the earth would be blessed, Genesis 12 and 3. So, does God require individual persons to express faith from the heart? Absolutely, he does. But until a child can do that, mom and dad's faith counts for them. Even these children, the ones who expressed faith, Cole and Nora and Theo, are still going to need the faith of their parents to guide them and anchor them and teach them and pray for them as they grow in understanding. In other words, they're not on their own. A helpful analogy is, for, the, for you Cards fans, um, I heard this from a professor just this week at the seminary, that when you have a baby, you buy a onesie, you know, uh, for, your, for the Cardinals, St. Louis Cardinals, and you put it on that baby, you know, it's, a, it's your team. And that baby has not said, I want to be a Cardinals fan, but that onesie says, we're going to raise this child as a Cards fan. And so baptism serves in a similar way. Um, that's why we teach our children and pray for them because the pr- covenant promises are not just for us only, but to us and our children, even as many as the Lord our God shall call, Acts 2.39. So uh, having said that, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. I hope that helps tie together some of what we, you know, our understanding of baptism and kind of what went on here today. And, um, and I guess it's kind of fitting because we're talking about this morning the birth of John, whose scholars have now determined should rightly be called John the Presbyterian, not John the Baptist. That's a joke. Luke 1 and 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah 
of the division, division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of the incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall, I, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and the people were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when the time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. This is God's word. Father, now we um, seek your... Uh, power and illumination of the Holy Spirit to guide us through this passage and through this message this morning. Lord, we pray that you would convict our hearts of the truth of this narrative and convince us, O oh God, that we might learn and know uh, of the gospel and how you moved heaven and earth to save us, O oh God. Father, we pray now that you would transform us let us leave differently than the way we came in here. In your son's name we pray, amen. I'm just going to put this right here for now. Um, when we read this story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, we can't help but to think of another barren couple in Genesis, Abraham and Sarah. And... Similarly, they were both old and without a child, and in some way, the barrenness of this couple serves as a metaphor, if you will, for the barrenness of the world, who at that time in, 
in Abraham and Sarah's day were without a worshiping community to bear witness and serve Yahweh, the world's creator. God's desire to bless the nation and, and deal with sin were to be accomplished by creating a people who will serve him and refle- reflect his character um, and light to the nations. And so this group of people, we're obviously talking about Israel, they find their beginning in this couple, Abraham and Sarah. God not only gives them a child, but this child becomes the first of a long line of descendants that would be part of Israel's history. As a people, Israel, uh, their history is a mixed bag of miraculous providence, faithfulness, and apostasy. It's a history filled both with glory and tragedy. When Israel uh, would fall into idolatry, God used their enemies to, to judge them in hopes of bringing them to repentance. And the Bible is a record of this. It tells the story of the salvation history of Israel. But Israel's history wasn't complete. By the time we get to the Old Testament book of Malachi, the situation is still pretty grim. Although Israel is in the land... Uh, they're still in kind of a spiritual exile. And in the final words of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, the prophet, were given these words. The Old Testament ends with these words. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of his covenant, in whom you delight, Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so Malachi leaves us, his words are somewhat of a a cliffhanger, if you will. The Old Testament ends with this cliffhanger. Fast forward 400 years through prophetic silence to this narrative here in Luke. And you see that Luke isn't introducing something new, but he's continuing the biblical story that started centuries earlier. God is once again on the move. That's what we should see here when we read this passage. And so we're told in verses 5 through 7 that Zechariah is a priest, and his wife is named Elizabeth, and they're both righteous in the sight of God, but they have no children. So the social structure in the first century went a little bit like this. Peasants were on the bottom, priests were somewhere in the middle, And merchants, governors, and the emperor were at the top of the social structure. So Zechariah and Elizabeth are right in the middle in terms of their social status. But the fact that Elizabeth has no child brings dishonor and reproach on their family and lowers their social status in the first century. It's a great dishonor that they have not been able to have children. And one day he's serving in the temple, which itself is a great honor. And the people are outside praying, 
And the temple's not like a church. So when we think of the temple, we think of people come in and we sit down. Actually, this is pretty new. Only in the last few centuries that people have done that. I don't know, maybe five, six, seven hundred years, if that, that people came in and sat down. Before that, they stood. And the Jewish temple in the first century, the people were outside and the priests were inside ministering. Only the priests were inside. And while he's there at the altar of incense, an angel appears to him, and Zechariah is frozen in fear. Remember Malachi's words we just read a minute ago? That the Lord would suddenly come to his temple? Where here's Zechariah, this priest, and he's burning incense at the altar, and he, he probably hadn't read Malachi anytime recently, and he's there doing his business, a faithful priest, and the Lord suddenly comes to his temple, and an angel appears out of nowhere, and he's frozen in fear. And the first thing the angel says is, don't be afraid. He says, Zechariah in verse 13, your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son. Remind you of another story? Yeah, it sounds just like Abraham and Sarah. In verse 14, he says, and you will have joy and gladness and many will receive, many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now Luke is also the author of Acts, and he writes the account on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit is poured out. So he's not confused about when the Holy Spirit's poured out. He's demonstrating that this child is special and unique. He receives the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. Now, we don't know what Zechariah's prayer was. The angel says, your prayer has been heard. But we're not told exactly what his prayer was. We know that, at the very least, there's two petitions that Zechariah is praying. One is for the salvation of Israel, his nation. And the other, no doubt, would be a prayer that may have gone on for years, where Zechariah was praying that his wife would conceive and have a child. And here's where the story really shines in its beauty. The destiny of Zechariah and Elizabeth become intertwined with the destiny of Israel. God's hearing their prayers means not only that deliverance has come to Israel, but that deliverance has come to them too. God's plan for the world is never void of our own personal stories. Our stories are caught up in God's plan for the world. In fact, each one of us has been given gifts to us by God and experiences given to us by God that he uses for his kingdom purposes. God was not only about to reverse Israel's status, he was about to use the reversal of status of this barren couple as a part of it. Both Israel as a people and Zechariah and Elizabeth need divine assistance. In fact, it's as if Luke is illustrating Israel's need for God's assistance by telling us the story 
of Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's beautiful when you think about it. And look at verse 16. He says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. The Old Testament gives us in the book of Malachi this remarkable prophecy that Elijah, who if you're a Bible-reading Israelite, know, you know that Elijah was caught up in a chariot, a whirlwind to God. And Malachi says that when the kingdom comes, Elijah is coming back. And so if you're a faithful Jew in the first century, you have this in your mind that the prophet Elijah, who never saw death but was carried up in a whirlwind to heaven, is actually coming back to announce the kingdom of God. And the angel is essentially declaring right here that this child, Zechariah, that your wife is going to be pregnant with, will come in the spirit of Elijah. In other words, the Elijah that was prophesied, John is him. John comes in the spirit of Elijah. And he's coming to prepare the way of the Lord, to announce the kingdom, and to prepare the people for Jesus. I grew up in Los Angeles, and I've been to multiple tapings of television shows. It's just something when you're bored, you say, yeah, let's go to the Jay Leno show tonight. And you go, and you wait in line, you get in there, and my wife and I, we've been to shows, late night shows, comedy shows, and one of the things that happens before the show starts is someone comes out, and he's usually an up-and-coming comedian, and he kind of preps and warms the crowd up. He kind of breaks the ice. There's all these people sitting in this little television studio, and no one knows each other, and everybody's kind of, you know, you've been waiting in line, you're kind of stiff, you don't know the person sitting next to you, and he comes, and he loosens up the crowd, and he warms the people up, and he, you know, he tells jokes, and what they really want is, when the show starts, they want to record laughter and clapping. You know, that's what they want. And even in between commercials, this comedian guy will come back out while the actors go backstage, and he'll keep the crowd hot, if you will. He primes the audience. But no matter how much you like the warm-up guy, uh, he's not the main attraction. In fact, he's only there to prepare the people to receive the real star or stars of the show, the actors. And that's what John's doing. John is meant to come into the world to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah, the promised one, the Holy One of Israel, Jesus. But that's not all he's doing. He's going to take away the shame of his parents and announce the coming one who will take away the shame of Israel. His mission is to prepare a people for the Lord. Now here's what's interesting. There's this contrast of power. When we started this verse, when we read through it, it says King Herod reigns in Judea, but God completely bypasses him, and he appears to a humble priest in the temple. For those of you that have been here the last several weeks, the last few months, we've been talking a lot about God flipping up our concepts of power and authority up on their head. That's something God does. The rich, the powerful, the mighty, those who have armies and militaries, God's not concerned with them. He's, he's doing something powerful in humble people. 
The Bible says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Herod is on the throne. He's got all this power, all these building projects, and God completely ignores him. And he appears to this humble priest and his barren wife. You know what it tells us? It tells us that God uses ordinary people doing ordinary things to accomplish his will and purposes in the world. Remember last week we were talking about the Christian's mission and we said that um, most conversions are not produced by professional missionaries, but average Christians simply sharing their faith. I think there's this mythology that we believe about being used by God, that we must be great, we must be epic, uncommon, and I just want to say to that that that's hooey. You know, life was never meant to be one long series of mind-blowing experiences or spectacular accomplishments. And neither is faithfulness. Neither is being a Christian. Because being a faithful Christian is lived out in the day-to-day mundane chores and tasks of going to work, washing the dishes, loving your kids, changing diapers, doing the laundry, paying taxes, being a good neighbor. That's where faithfulness is is, is, is It's bared out that way. In the day-to-day, you know, mundane, seemingly boring, what appears to be insignificant tasks of our daily life. But it's in these daily challenges, these daily mundane tasks and chores, that we discover the joy of the Lord. Zechariah is just doing what he's supposed to do. He's just a priest. He's in the temple. He's burning incense. It's a great honor, but it's his job. He's not thinking, here is where, you know, God's going to split the sky. He's thinking, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. And the angel of the Lord appears to him. And it's in our daily routines and our daily, uh, uh, you know, our daily lives that God's glory is revealed to us. And we're filled with the the joy of the Lord as we struggle through the challenges of our daily lives. You develop patience. That God wants you to have because you've worked for years for a jerk, you know? It's when your child gets sick and the bills come due that you learn how to pray. You start reading the Bible because it's the only thing that can fight depression. You learn to be a better witness for Jesus after you get owned in a conversation by a skeptic. It's these daily things that happen to us where the glory of God is revealed. It's not always some mountaintop, mind-blowing, spectacular experience, but in the day-to-day chores and tasks of our life. And I want to say this to you. Being ordinary just might be the greatest thing you ever do. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they weren't expecting any of this. They're simply devout people who love God going about their regular daily business. And in verse 18, Zachariah requests a sign confirming the angel's prediction as if the angel, you know, standing there, you know, isn't a sign enough. You know, he responds, uh, how am I going to know this? And the angel, Gabriel, responds, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tweak the inflection of what Gabriel said. He says, I'm Gabriel. He says, how am I going to know that this is going to happen? You know, and Gabriel's like, what more do you want? I'm the angel of the Lord. I stand in the presence of God. He's he's clearly irritated with Zechariah. 
And he says, I'll give you a sign, all right? You didn't believe me. You're going to be silent until the child is born. And he comes walking out of the temple, mute, and the people realize he's seen a vision. But Elizabeth, in verse 24, she rejoices at the news. It says, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Zechariah doubts, Elizabeth believes and rejoices. And these mixed responses between husband and wife, they seem to prefigure Israel's response of faith to the message of salvation that's going to come later on through Jesus. And here's the promise in verse 16. This is the pivot of the whole passage. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's, a, that's both a positive statement and a negative statement. It's a positive statement because it means many will believe. It's a negative statement because it means not everyone will believe. And as we go through Luke's gospel, we're going to see different responses from different people in Israel, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting judgment. The gospel comes to remove the reproach of our sin in our lives, to change our state, our status, if you will, with God, to reverse the curse of death. The only question is, what will your response be? Will it be rejoicing and belief and faith, or will it be skepticism and doubt? That's really the only question here. Will you believe or will you doubt God's message of salvation for you through Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for this, this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Help us that in this story we see your power and your grace towards ordinary people. That the kingdom comes through things that seemingly on the surface are ordinary. Father, we pray now that you would, you would convict our hearts that we would not be so discouraged because we look at ourselves and in the mirror we don't see someone incredibly gifted, incredibly influential. Help us to know that Ordinary people like us, you desire and delight in using for your kingdom purposes. Help us to be faithful and obedient and heed and respond to the call of the kingdom. In your son's name we pray, amen. As the ushers bring forward the offertory basket, we ask that you would place the connect card, uh, the detachable portion of your order of worship this morning into the basket as it goes by. And if you're visiting with us for the first time, we'd love to know you're here. We'd love to know how we can pray for you. And there are spaces to fill that out as well. So as the band plays, would you reflect uh, this morning on the baptisms, on God's faithfulness to all of us, uh, on the fact that he has taken mercy uh, on the barrenness of our souls in sin and given us grace instead.